All right, good morning. Well, our call to worship today comes from Psalm 122. Hear these words of the Lord. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. As was, this, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord, there thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Dear Father, you are indeed beautiful. You make all things beautiful in and through your creation. You've created us in your image. We are beautiful because of you. Thank you for today, for this rain, for us to be able to gather here and come before you as worshipers of you. We lift up this morning to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our scripture reading today is from Ephesians 2. Before we hear the word of the Lord from Mr. Nebraska, it comes from Ephesians 2. <laughs> but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, has broken down his flesh in the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I'd love to have Mr. John come up, our past preacher, and give us a word from the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you again. See you and uh, saw you in uh, first of January. So, wow, what a deal! I thought when Chad was talking about aging, he was talking about me. So he he saved me from that. And I thought the flowers were for me too. I don't know. Um, I don't know. But anyway, well. Um, I wish you uh, Lenten blessings. This is the second Sunday of Lent for those of you who follow the church calendar and uh, Lent is a speed bump in the year like Advent and uh, allows us to move towards Holy Week um, and, uh, and then Easter. And it's a wonderful time to consider our lives. Uh, N.T. Rice says, Lent is a time for discipline, for confession, for honesty, not because God is mean or fault-finding or finger-pointing, but he wants us to know the joy of being cleaned out, ready for all the good things he now has in store. I love that. I want to get cleaned out <laughs> and be fully available to Jesus. Well, um, 
Over the last five years, since retiring, I've had many conversations with pastors, uh, church leaders, seminary students, and uh, the stories I've heard from people caused me to be troubled and deeply concerned about the church. One very prominent spiritual spokesman, leader, author, whom I meet with, um, commented recently, I am beginning to lose faith in the church. And out there in the world, this is a prevalent attitude. Today I want to talk about the church, and it's interesting that Chad gave the elder update about what God's doing here and uh, being honest about what they need prayer for, but I want to talk about the church. I want to talk about your experience in the church. I want to talk about the problems that face the church today, and then I want to talk about a thread woven through Scripture that I find helps me recapture what God intends for the church to be. So let's mull a bit. What has been your experience of church? And when I say church, I'm mostly thinking about church in the West, church in the United States, although I know some of you have overseas experiences. Some of you have grew up in families that went to church. For some of you, it was later on in life. Some of you have gone to church all of your life. Others has been rather sporadic. Some of you may have forgotten why you go to church. Some of you have had positive experiences, very positive. But many people who have attended church have negative experiences at best. Uh, there's been a lot of church hurt. And I hear stories from seminary students, particularly from young women. Some have gone to church out of guilt or duty. Some of you have attended a church but felt guilt. Uh, judgment, feeling like you're not good enough, not good as good a Christian as all the other people sitting in the pews. Some of you feel a, a greater sense of community at a bar rather than a church building. Some of you have experienced leaders you could not trust. Some of you have attended churches that were alive, the living faith of the dead. Some of you have faced, uh, attended stale dead churches, the dead faith of the living. Has church going in your life, as you look back, has it been life-giving? When was it life-giving? How was it life-giving? How have you experienced God within the church? I imagine that you, we could sit around here and uh, gather in circles, and we would hear a wide range of stories, feelings, attitudes, and impressions about your experience of the church. And maybe that'd be a great thing for you to do <laughs> uh, as you get to know each other. I grew up in the Midwest, in Nebraska, in the 50s and 60s. So going to church for me was a non-negotiable. My family went to church. The thought never entered my mind of not going to church. And even in those days, even as a youth, I wore a coat and tie. Um, 
During high school, I was quite involved. I had a hunger for transcendence, light, and life. What spoke to me most in my church going was communion, saying the Apostles' Creed every Sunday, and singing hymns. But teaching the Bible guidance into the spiritual life was sorely lacking. So when I went to college and began to face disappointments with life and with God, I stopped going to church. Maybe some of you can resonate with that reaction to real life. There wasn't anything to hold me. But my hunger for transcendence continued and was actually kept alive through the romantic poets. Finally, in my search, I had an encounter with Jesus in the Gospels at the end of my college years. I moved to the Bay Area after college during the Jesus Movement. It was an amazing time, a very unique time in American Christianity. And I began attending Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto. The work of the Spirit was palatable. People were coming to Christ every day. Every night we would gather for meals and we would invite Christians and non-Christians alike. We'd go backpacking together. We would do all sorts of things together. Brian, fresh out of college, looking, I'm speaking of Brian Morgan, fresh out of college, looking like a teenager, was teaching 800 people on a Sunday night in the Sunday night services. Maybe you've seen the movie The Jesus Revolution, and that highlights some of what was happening in California at that point in time. I'm reminded of this reading about the uh, Asbury College revival, which from what I have heard and read seems to be authentic. God is alive. The Spirit is alive. Pardon? Praise God. Praise God. But even in the best of churches, church is hard, messy, and it's complicated. And I know this because I was a pastor for 34 years in the very church where I experienced the outpouring of the church when I moved to California in the 70s. There has been a remarkable change in the past 50 years, but in the last five years or so, things have really ratcheted up. What is it that the church is facing today? Well, the church in the West no longer has a great reputation. It's viewed with skepticism by the world, lack of trust. Today we live in the season of the nuns and the duns. The nuns who are, are the unchurched. They don't have an experience to church, they've never gone to church, it's not in their history, and they're not necessarily looking go, to go to church. And there's, then there's the duns. The duns are the de-churched. They're the ones who have become disillusioned with the church, um, and so they have decided to stop going to church, even though they have been very active in church for a long time. COVID caused all sorts of difficulties. 
really threw a wrench into the church, gathering as the church. Do we meet or not meet? Um, people missed not meeting, missed not seeing people, their friends gathering. It was a very, very difficult time. And then we had streaming. Whoever thought of that 10 years ago? And today, people have decided to continue to go to church online. While that's great for disabled people, it really um, it is detrimental to spiritual community being together. Statistics say that 40% of a church's congregation did not return to the same church after COVID. They either go to another church or not at all. Politics is an emotional lightning rod that has divided our country, our families, and our church. And when politics co-ops the church, politics always wins. The issue of racial righteousness, racial injustice, has provoked emotional disagreements in the last few years. We talk about it too much. We don't talk about it enough. Young people don't attend church because the church does not address the relevant issues of the day that they want to talk about. And do I dare mention the place of differing sexual orientations within church leadership that have divided denominations? On top of that, there's the more common problem of unhealthy church leaders, an emphasis on numbers, having a star preacher, pressure to succeed, legalism, and this consumer mentality that wants to shop for a church, um, and it's all about my needs and my wants. Church is about me. Kind of overwhelming, isn't it? I don't know if you think about this, but I do. It's hard to think about some of these things. But this is why church leaders are exhausted and worn out. But I'm reminded that the early church had plenty of difficulties. See the care of widows in Acts 7. The situation with uh, deciding uh, eating food, sacrificed to idols in Acts 15. The inclusion of the Gentiles into one body the issue of circumcision, the issues of immorality. We would not have first and second Californians if Paul hadn't had to deal with this issue in, in the churches. False teaching, relational problems among leaders. So you realize the controversies have vexed the church throughout the century. They've always been here. And we can't live in a, we can't turn a blind eye to the issues that we are facing today. They're complicated. I don't have easy answers. People aren't perfect. Churches are not perfect. But I know that God is committed to his church. I know that. And I know that God lives in reality the reality of the season in which we find ourselves. So why do we go to church? What do we want to get out of church? How can church be what it's called to be? Well, maybe church 
isn't just about me. The New Testament uses several metaphors for the church that I believe help us to elevate our view of church and reclaim what God intends for the church. First, the church is a family. In the Old Testament, God calls Israel his sons. Followers are brothers and sisters. When Jesus' family came looking for him, and couldn't get into the house to see him because it was so crowded. It was told to Jesus, your mother and family are outside. Jesus said, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The second metaphor is that the church is the bride of Christ. In the Old Testament, God likened his relationship to Israel as a marriage. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, steadfast love, in mercy, and in faithfulness. In the New Testament, marriage is likened to the relationship between Christ and the church. Christ refers to himself as the bridegroom. Followers of Jesus look forward to a great wedding banquet in the new heavens and new earth. And for the time being, we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, and this is our engagement ring. Third, the church is the body of Christ. Body, that's a, it's not a building, it's organic. Christ is the head. We are the members of the body. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, uh, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews and Greeks, slaves or free. All were made to drink of one spirit. Now, do you realize that all three of these metaphors, family, bride, body, are relational? They're all describing how we relate to God, to Christ, and then how we relate to one another. But there's another metaphor that really grabs my attention. And that is that the church is the temple of God. Paul says in Ephesians that the church is joined together in Christ and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And Peter adds that we are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house. So the basic notion of temple is a place where a deity resides or the representative of a deity resides. This is a place of worship. This is where people encounter God. This is where people encounter the invisible. And so it's no surprise to see temples all over the world that were built for a lot of different religions, a lot of different belief systems. The theme of temple is a thread that runs through the Bible beginning in Genesis, ending in Revelation. And so I want to lay out this marvelous theme for you. 
First, the temple occurs in the very first chapter of the Bible in Genesis 1. Bernard talked about this in his sermon in 2008 on Genesis 1. Creation was designed as a cosmic temple. On the first three days, God formed creation. On the next three days, he filled the creation. Isaiah tells us that heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. We sang a song about the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth. This is palace temple language. The last acts of creation was to create man and woman in God's own image. He put his image bearers into creation to keep it, to multiply, to fill the earth. And this idea of cosmic temple has parallels in the Egyptian and Babylonian creation myths. Then we see that the garden was a temple. The word garden signifies an enclosed place. It's a sanctuary. God dwelled in the garden with the man and woman. They talked to him. In the garden was the tree of life. And out of the garden flowed a river that separated into four rivers. The fall of humankind caused Adam and Eve to be expelled from that temple garden. The next place we see it is the tabernacle. When Israel wandered in the wilderness, God gave detailed instructions on how to build the tabernacle. Everything had meaning. He described what it was to look like down to the smallest thing. Bernard talked about this as well, if you've been here and, and listened to those sermons on the tabernacle. When the tabernacle was complete, the cloud covered the tent of the meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And whenever the cloud moved, Israel would pack up their portable sanctuary and follow the cloud. Then we have Solomon's temple in Jerusalem, a magnificent building. The temple was a microcosm of creation that was built seven years echo of creation. Like the tabernacle, the temple was built with elaborate and meaningful design. When the ark was placed into the holy place, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And this is where God dwelt among his people. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 122, our, our call to worship, I was so glad when we went up to Jerusalem to the temple and to be with God there. Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians when Judah was taken into exile. When Judah returned, they rebuilt the temple, but the glory of the Lord did not descend on that structure. After many years of silence, Jesus appears on the scene and he tabernacled, dwelt among us and when Jesus cleansed the temple in John 2, the temple is redefined. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple 
And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Now Jesus is the place where God dwells on earth. He is the axis of heaven and earth where humans meet with God. What happens next? Jesus dies, he's raised from the dead, he ascends into heaven, and the Holy Spirit is poured out on God's people. So speaking of the Gentiles who had been separated from Israel but now could be included in the people of God, Paul says you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Jews and Gentiles come together to form one new humanity. The people of God are redefined. The temple is redefined. In this, lang- in this passage, Paul uses both architectural and biological metaphors. The foundation of the temple is the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. Christ is the cornerstone that holds this, uh, the two walls of Jews and Gentiles together. The Spirit of the Lord fills this temple just like the glory of God filled the tabernacle and the temple in Jerusalem. And on Pentecost, the temple of the Lord is extended to include all nations. All are one in Christ. But this temple is not static. It's organic. It's it's moving. It's like a giant, magnificent tree. It's a growing building, a moving building. Think of a transformer. And it's communal since each stone has its place in the temple. Peter says much the same thing. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. The stones aren't bricks. Stones are people. The people form a spiritual house. The word precious might relate to the precious stones and metals that we see in the tabernacle, temple, and priestly garments. Paul reinforces this idea in Corinthians. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? And then there's one final act that we see in the book of Revelation when the new heavens and new earth descend. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his God and God himself will be with them as their God. And I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. 
temple we find is all the way through the Bible. And in the end, the temple will be God and the Lamb. They will be the temple. They will be visible. We will be in their presence. From the throne of God will flow the river of life, and on its banks is the tree of life. In the end, we return to Eden, to the garden, to our home, to dwell with God forever. I find this marvelous. I find this, how God designed his, his ways of dwelling with people throughout history. So what do we do with this? What are the takeaways? How does this challenge, encourage, or change? First, we understand the true nature of the church. <clears throat> we are the church. You're the church. You're the temple of God. You're the place where God dwells. Temple is our core identity as a church. The essence of who we are. God inhabits us. He inhabits our bodies through the Spirit. And I really think this should change our view of ourselves, the church we attend, the church universal. This can elevate us above the problems and difficulties, hold us together in love. The church is God's presence in the world. The question is not, how do we do church, but how do we be the church? And this starts with reclaiming our identity and seeing ourselves as the magnificent container for the God of the universe. What creates awe and wonder for you? What blows you away? Sunset, mountains, music, art, birth of a child? When's the last time that you saw something and you were speechless? Stopped you in your tracks? Now transpose that sensation onto your image of the church. Magnificent. Think about what God has done through history and bring that glory into your image of the church. Because the, temp- the, the church is not a temple of doom. The church is a temple of glory. The truth that God, that the church is God's dwelling place should change how we come to church because we are the church. We don't go to church, we gather as the church. We worship and glorify God because we are the house of God. We turn our gaze upward to the heavens and receive what God has for us when we gather. Rather than being critical of the songs we sing or the the teacher that morning or all the mechanics of the church service, We grow together through love, not judgment. Each one of us is a precious stone, gold, silver. 
in this temple of God, all are necessary. Individualization is the enemy of the church. And so it's so important for us to plant ourselves with a group of people to be that dwelling place of God in a local setting. I'm sure you've played that game Jenga where you build this tower of blocks and then you, you take one out, take one out. Eventually it falls down. Well, see, that's, the church needs everybody because when you begin to remove pieces, the church becomes weaker, more unstable. Second, we understand the means for being the church. Since we are the temple of God by virtue of the Spirit, there is an emphasis on the Spirit. We're not flesh people, we're spirit people. God breathed his Spirit into humankind and they became living beings. God filled both the tabernacle and temple with his glory. In the new covenant, followers of Christ become a new creation. And then they're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. We are formed, and then we are filled. The Spirit is the difference maker as we move from the old covenant to the new. The law is written on our hearts. The letter kills. The Spirit gives life. Jesus is all about life. How do we work through the challenges and difficulties that we face today? Well, through the power, the guidance, direction, and compassion that the Spirit gives us. We face into the difficulties. We can't ignore them. We can't live in a silo. But we don't have to depend upon ourselves to come up with all the answers. The Spirit gives us the patience to discuss, disagree, seek the truth together. And Chad was addressing that when he was talking about PBC. John Dunn wrote a poem called Satire. And, and, and Dunn describes seeking truth as climbing a steep hill which is gained by walking back and forth like switchbacks to reach the summit. And sometimes that's what it takes. Climbing the mountain on a journey. Some of the issues take time to sort out but God will be with us in these things as we walk in the Spirit. And then we can understand the purpose of the church from this metaphor of temple. The temple is, this temple of the church is not only for the growth of believers, but it's also for the sake of the world. It's the only organization that exists for the benefit of its non-members. As the children of Abraham, we recapture God's promise to Abraham to be a blessing to the nation. Israel was to be a light on the hill, not a city that was enclosed and, 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 and walled to keep people out. Peter said, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you 
may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Jesus became the meeting place between God and sinners. And since we are now the temple that Jesus is, we continue to do his work by bringing good news to the poor, grinding up the brokenhearted, proclaiming liberty to captives, opening prison doors to comfort those who mourn, heal the sick. As we see in John chapter 7, out of our hearts flow rivers of living water. And I think again, once we see this purpose, this mission, this elevates up above politics and other issues that we face. When people walk into a gathering of Jesus followers, they should see and sense something holy, special, different than what they experience in the world. Church is all about life to a world that needs life. Years ago, I took my brother-in-law to, um, to a men's retreat at Mount Hermon. And he was not a churchgoer, uh, not a follower of Christ. But after the morning meeting, we came back to our room and I asked Randy, I said, what'd you think? And he goes, I would be crazy to not want what those men have. Today we live in a, a world of violence, social injustice, corruption at every level, addiction, abuse, on and on. But in the midst of the darkness stands the temple of God, full of light and life and glory, and the darkness cannot overcome it. And so the church, this temple, is a temple of glory. May the church continue to shed that glory into our world. Amen. Let me offer this prayer. Lord, we beseech thee to keep thy household, the church, in continual godliness, that through thy protection it may be free from all adversities and devoutly given to serve thee in good works to the glory of thy name. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Hey, good to be with you.